Hi, everybody. It is, uh, let's see, June 10th, 2021. My name is Luke Thomas, and this is the Luke Thomas live chat right here on uh, Morning Combat YouTube channel. And let's see, what is up? Uh, lots going on. Back from Miami, which was fun. Looking forward to a ton of great fights. There's Clarissa Shields' MMA debut tonight. There's uh, Douglas Lima versus uh, Yaroslav Amosov tomorrow, which I think a lot of people are sleeping on. Then there's a uh, killer UFC event on Saturday. Arasanya defending his title. You have the return of Nate Diaz in the first non-title, non-main event five-round fight in company history. Man, you got a lot going on. So, as always, thank you for joining me. Thumbs up on the video if you're so kind. Please hit that subscribe button. For those of you who are new, and I know we've added a bunch in the last couple of weeks, welcome. We do this most Thursdays. Uh, sometimes we don't when I'm on the road because it becomes a little bit too hard. But uh, certainly when I'm at home, we do these, uh, and I answer your questions to the best of my ability. Sometimes greatly, sometimes poorly, sometimes not at all. But I do make a genuine good faith effort at it, okay? All right, so I appreciate you guys. Uh, without further ado, let's get this party started, shall we? All right, and there we are. And as you can see, what is it? This button, the subs. Wait, <laughs> there we go. The subscribe button. Uh, okay, I'll turn that off. All right. Uh, started thirty minutes late today because I had a bunch of stuff I have to do, but I uh, got them all done, and here we are. All right. So what we're gonna do is we'll put that here, and I will put the comments up or the questions rather. Let's get to these bitches now. <laughs> First question. Showtime, if they sign, you're assuming that they sign Ariel, what happens next? Y'all know I can't answer that. Y'all know I can't. Y'all know I'm not allowed to talk about any of this shit. So, um, I hate to like duff on the very first one, something I don't like to do here, but I don't have much of a choice. So, we'll just say maybe in the next episode I can say something that I want to say about it. All right. Um, okay, so question number two. John Anik, when asked about low fighter pay, once replied, there are a lot of millionaires in this sport. I'm assuming that's what he said because you put quotations around it. But every time someone says, oh, so-and-so said X, and I go back and look, and the comment is usually significantly more nuanced than what people present to me, so I'd like to see what the full comment is. But let's assume for a second that he said that. This person writes, I shook my head at this. What's one comment, apart from anything COVID-related, from someone in the MMA community that caused your head to shake? I mean, I, Jesus, I wouldn't even know where to start with something like that. Over the years, I've heard some whoppers, man. I've heard some big ones. Um, you know, in the case of asking a UFC employee about fighter pay, you know, you're going to get a, you're going to get, um, I mean, John X in a tough position, folks. You guys don't think, I don't think you understand. Like, something I've, I've learned from behind the scenes is that I think he is very, very well liked at Zufa. But to my knowledge... Uh, you know, those those jobs that he like to me, it would be insane for the UFC to replace John Anik. He is about the best you're going to get anywhere in combat sports at his job, and I think he genuinely cares about the fighters. I know he cares about doing a good job. I think he cares about. I think he, he's cognizant that those seats that they, they get to to do those jobs. They can be given to anyone at any time. Now, obviously, they're not going to just, you know, pull the rug out from under him. But, like, you know, those things were like, oh, you have a job for life. Like, that's not really the reality. And so I think what ends up happening is, 
you know, this is just a theory. I've not spoken to John about this, and I like John a ton, but I just think anyone who works over there, um, you know, you work at any job, you need to be a little bit sensitive to the company's interests, but if you feel like your position is somewhat precarious and, and again, I'm not, I've told that he's well-liked, but not that they've given him the designation of commentator for life, you know? You know, you have to really play ball with some of their interests. So he's in a, you know, he's in a bit of a tough spot with what he can say and, and what he can't say. It is true. There are, the sport has created some millionaires. Obviously we know that's not the real answer. The real answer is that 18 to 20% is all that they get. And, um, without some kind of mechanism to change that, Ali Act, Union, you know, you guys have been through this with me a million times, it will likely remain about where it is. Uh, and, you know, that's just the reality of it. That's just the reality of it. And at this point, like, you know, everyone wants to beat up on UFC for it, and fine, like, they're the ones who are cutting the checks that are not as big as they should be. But at the same time, it's like, you know, I've said it over and over again. Dude, It's all, the onus is on the fighters. You know, it, it's not on media anymore. It's not on managers it's not on I mean people have tried to unionize them and the fighters had kind of like an uh, attitude about it whenever they complain about pay I'm like someone um, someone send them all a mirror because that's really the issue here it's less about what you know Anik or me or anyone else has to say about it at this point like he's under a lot of you know I would suspect a lot of pressure to to, to put on a you know positive attitude about the situation I'm sure he does have a positive attitude but the reality is what the reality is it's just you know these jobs are hard to get and even more so hard to keep, man. It doesn't seem that way probably from the outside looking in, but they're they're tough. They're tough. How would Connor's MMA career change if he gets flattened again in under two rounds? Opposed to, say, losing a split decision war. Uh, and he says, congrats on the success. I mean, definitely there's going to... Listen, the narrative that comes out of these things oftentimes drives matchmaking or drives fan interest and then fan interest drives matchmaking what is palatable to the public I've not understood you know some of these uh exhibition fights because I didn't I, I just didn't understand what I still don't really understand fully the appeal I mean I get it it's people are like oh what will it look like and then you see it and it's like it doesn't look that cool man it's not, it's not that interesting uh I guess sometimes it can be but in this particular case, listen, if he gets flattened again, I think if he loses no matter what, no matter what, unless it's like a robbery, but let's say he lost fairly or then got stopped, right? No no, no controversy about it. Um, for sure, everyone's going to say that the old Connor is gone. And I don't think that would be wrong necessarily, right? I mean, there's something to be said. There actually is research around this. I, I don't know where I saw it. I, I would You'd have to fact check this. But I do believe that there is some actual research to the idea of a hot hand where if someone is shooting well let's say on the basketball court they just can't miss keep feeding them the ball because they're in this space where they're really dialed in and and they're having a lot of success there turns it turns out there actually is something to that and I think Connor's path now we'll see if he can regain success but you're asking if he lost if he lost and again without controversy um you would have to argue probably that 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 move he had towards featherweight weight probably played a role um, being underestimated probably played a role, but also like that hot hand is over. The game caught up. You saw it with Tony. Tony got a little bit old. Yes, I understand. Everyone like, what about the old Tony? Okay, fair enough. He probably would do better. But the idea that your peers just catch up with you because you can't maintain that gap on them, whether through age or damage or technical proficiency improving sort of overall, you know, if he lost to Dustin Poirier, and I suspect that he will, by the way, um, the hot hand is over. 
what you're asking is what is salvageable essentially if he loses that's a different question um if he loses split decision i think that gives him a little bit of wiggle room it certainly makes if diaz is still a viable op option we'll see what happens with him on saturday i still think you have that you can run through if um sorry i got a massonomics flag you guys know massonomics it's the uh it's the don't tread on me flag i don't know if you guys can see this let me pull this up it's the don't tread on me flag but if you can see it's actually see it's a weight and it's in a squat rack and it actually says don't curl in me it's pretty fucking great i'm gonna hang that up in my home gym when i finish it um So if he loses via split decision, he is not even if he even if he gets viciously KO'd, there are still big fights for him. But I think you're talking about a constrained set of options about what how well something would do if they made it, what's viable to make. But there's no doubt in my mind that if he loses, that will be the bookend on the idea that like, oh, what happened, you know, with the loss to Habib or Dustin was just time off, inactivity, blah, blah, blah. Something like that. It'll be just no, no, no. The game is passed him by or is is has caught up pretty to a pretty significant degree and that whatever hot hand he had at 145 that is dead and gone so if he is ha to have any success it is to forge some kind of new chapter about the whole thing but like you got to remember I, I could have sworn like I, I you know this is when I didn't understand the fight game well enough I thought for sure when Kimbo Slice suffered his first loss in MMA when he was running through elite XC stuff that that people were like oh right this guy's not very good it's just not the way it works they will adjust their appreciation um, about what you can do and they'll grade you on a curve for a long time. You won't be the same kind of star you were, but dude, the passions for some of these guys die very, very, very hard. So the idea that he couldn't be in big fights or at least attract a giant audience no matter what would be wrong. But then you have to ask yourself, does he want to continue? Would he want to take fights like that? There's just a lot of it. Kimbo didn't mind because he was still trying to make money up until his death, frankly. Um, and, you know, they could match up against the same guys he was coming in, beating the Tank Abbots and the Can Shamrocks of the world, you know, something like that. Um, but but the idea that all of a sudden the bubble pops and there's no balloon left, it doesn't quite work that way. When designing your shows, which other sports shows did you take influence from and why? Certainly PTI's structure a little bit and how made for TV and or digestible um, video online content and, and it is where right? you can pull out segments, you can rebrand them. Um, I would say that they 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 left the hill, but the Rising show with uh, Sagar and Jetty and Crystal Wall, you know, where they have the longer show that delves delves into a ton of topics, and they'll pull out little ones to make either social assets with or other YouTube videos with or something like that. I felt like that was a good model, and then also like. Part of the way in which I envisioned Morning Combat, BC changed when he wanted to start to, uh, to start putting his fingerprint on things. Like he's the one that brought in, "Have you seen this shit?" and things like that. And so, you would have to ask him how he modeled that. I don't, I don't actually know. I never had a fully conversation like, "Where'd you get this from?" Maybe it was just his idea and his idea alone. I, I'm not entirely certain. But so part of the modeling is just listening to the personality of your of your on air partner. And what they want to bring to the ball game, and uh, he wanted to bring, as you guys could probably tell, a little bit more of a humorous element than I was naturally. Uh, I mean, I wanted it to be fun, but uh, and a little bit looser for sure than the MMA beat. That was it, it, there were we were there were some, you know, they didn't want us cursing on that show, even though I did sometimes. They didn't want us talking about certain topics that were a little bit locker roomish. 
Uh, and Showtime doesn't have any of those constraints. They just let it fly. And so um, I think part of that helped mold it as well. But, you know, I just wanted something that was a little bit familiar that you could use to build assets around that could be disseminated. But then part of it, you just wanted to um, let the personalities of the individual hosts take shape. And I think and I think we've done that over time. Although, still not done with that. Still trying to figure that out. <laughs> oh, second question. Besides Brian Campbell, Danny Segura, and perhaps Chuck Mindenhall, who else do you think you can have chemistry with and be your authentic self on screen? Probably Sean L. Shoddy I could do that with. Um... Who else could I do that with? There's probably a handful. Probably a handful. But, you know, it takes a special something, like a, a lot of time spent with this person. The problem is there's there's probably some other people I could do it with uh, in terms of, like, good co-host relationship. But I don't, and I know them well, like, professionally, but I know a lot of these other guys personally, and so it makes it a little bit easier. Who's an athlete, dead or alive, that you'd love to see send Brian to hell? <laughs> I don't really think about it that way. Um, I'd like to see like a really nice guy send BC to hell, you know, like a like a like a Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. Like he doesn't send anybody to hell ever, you know. That'd be kind of funny. What would it take for you to step in and save BC from being sent to hell? See, the Mayweather thing—it wasn't that his argument was wrong. Um, it was that. You got to know Brian a little bit. I can tell when he's making a point that he genuinely feels, and I think he, to an extent, genuinely felt it. And then when he's just being, <laughs> when he's like, you know, needling the audience or needling the uh, the other person or like, you know, being intentionally passive aggressive. And I could tell, I just know him. He was doing that on purpose. So because he brought down the thunder that was on, on, on purpose, then that's up to him to handle. I would jump in if I felt like, um, either A, he was getting overwhelmed or B, he didn't invite it and, you know, or C, like he was trying to be cool. The Thompson thing, he was kind of giving it to me a little bit too. And I kind of thought, well, first time being what it is, let's just let it rock. And, and I, I had no problem with it and it's fine. But um, if it's somebody we didn't know and they were being shitty and BC wasn't being passive aggressive and the question was fair, like in other words, if like really every element of it is unfair, yeah, sure, you know. But he's a he's, he's a big boy, he doesn't he not need my help that much. Uh, fess up, Luke. Ariel's leaving ESPN to join MK. No, no, he's not. A lot of questions about him. I don't give a fuck. Did you see the sparring session between Bisping and his co-host, Luis J. Gomez? And if so, what'd you think? I saw him rolling briefly, kind of half-heartedly with Luke Rockhold. I didn't see the one with Gomez. Will you and BC do the same for us? No. No. Which fighter had the shocking, most extended downfall, in your opinion? Boy, I mean, there's only one answer to that question, which is BJ Penn. It's I, I, I really struggle to think. I mean, you could maybe make a case for a fighter who did something big and then went to jail for murder or something, you know, where, um, where the, where the downfall is in incorporates incarceration, you know, evil, despicable acts, uh, that might change somewhat the answer. But if you're just talking about from the high that they experienced to the, the distance that was covered to the low, 
perhaps, although, although the law is involved in numerous ways with BJ, whether it's related to his marital disputes or drunk driving or fighting or whatever, uh, in the streets, I mean, got to be BJ Penn. And it's just a shame because I don't even know how to explain, like, who would be the guy now that you could pinpoint as, like, the, I don't know, heir to BJ. In many ways, Max Holloway might, might be that. But, like, who represents now what he represented at his peak at the time? You know, you're talking about the kid virtuoso who became champion. I mean, you're talking about the kid, the first American to win the Black Belt World Championships in Jiu-Jitsu. Heavy-handed, grew up fighting, had a rich background, but grew up fighting in the streets. Wore damage well, had an iron chin, when trained right, had unbelievable cardio, had a, a phenomenal jab, had you know the best takedown defense you've ever seen, had back takes like nobody else. I don't even know who the fuck that would be right now. I really don't, because even if you look at the specialists, or I should say the champions out today, they all kind of have these concentrations of talent, and BJ did as well. But BJ, like when you went into a fight, it was very hard to find something at his peak, at his peak, where you would look at them and you would say, like, what is this opponent as good at or better than uh, than BJ? You could have maybe made a case that, that Matt Hughes was stronger, maybe a better overall wrestler, but when it came to like how they grappled, BJ was just better took his back uh, in both fights. You know what I mean? Fucked up his rib in the second one, I think, but and then beat him in the third, But uh, which was a weird time anyway. But, you know, there, it, 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 he often took fights against like Henzo or Rodrigo Gracie or even the Lodo Machida fight that were way outside of his weight class just so they could make it even remotely even. That was like the first sort of, they were real fights, but I mean, we're talking about these Mayweather-Paul exhibition shit where you have to kind of figure out an arrangement that makes it competitive. He had it in the reverse way where he was like seeking glory coming up and everyone in the weight class, you know, this is an exaggeration because obviously Jens Pulver gave him some trouble and, um, you know, he left the organization and whatnot. But there was a time where like, I, you know, you, you wanted to see him go up in weight because that was the only way he could get challenged. Um, and eventually that door closed too. But you're asking like who had the hardest fall. I can't even think of who that guy would be today. And then whoever that would be, you know, imagine they're doing what this guy's doing where they had like double digit losses out of nowhere and then all these personal problems. Like it's it's awful. It's awful to see. It was it was unthinkable. Unthinkable the night he beat Diego Sanchez. Like when he was with the Marinovich brothers and he was at lightweight and he was the champion, it was this what we're experiencing today, obviously vicariously, unthinkable. Absolutely not in any way something that those of us on the outside saw coming. Perhaps people closer to him saw this coming years ago. I don't know. But from our vantage point, oh, man. I totally caught me by surprise. Never, ever, ever would have expected this. One of Izzy's best friends and training partners tragically died recently. Yeah, that, that um, I guess there was some kind of street fight in New Zealand, and uh, tragically he lost his life. What impact do you think this and the yawn loss will have on the fight come Sunday? <sighs> Hard to say exactly what the impact is. I mean, a guy like Adesanya who can travel all over the earth the way he does and take fights in back-to-back -back succession. I mean, you understand, in terms of competition experience, kickboxing, boxing, MMA... Um, Adesanya has made that walk so many times that I tend to think that he can be dialed in without the normal distractions 
granted, this is somewhat, if not majorly, abnormal. But in general, I tend to think he doesn't get tripped up by that. You know, when he lost to Jan Blachowicz, um, my general my general takeaway was like there was a level of grappling and weight that I think his team underestimated, and then on the stand up, uh, I think they got caught in some of Jan's traps a little bit. But it wasn't some like epic beatdown or something. It wasn't like like you couldn't make adjustments and then redo that and think it could be competitive again. At least that's not that's my personal view. So I don't, I'm not, I'm less inclined. I'll say that with the Jan loss, you know, and the way in which Vittori beat Kevin Holland probably is weighing on Izzy's mind about the takedown defense, which I've gone over in detail along the actual fence line. If Adesanya is pressed up against the fence, his takedown defense is pretty close to lights out. It's not perfect, but it's very, very, very good. The idea that it's poor there is not met with the evidence. I have a whole video on it, and I've gone into detail. It's, it's simply not true. It's just not true. Even if you can get him down along the fence line, he gets up pretty quickly, and the evidence at middleweight is incontestable there. Even Jan Blachowicz had a hard time getting him down, uh, and I think failed ultimately along the fence line. It was absent that, and same for Vittori, when he was able to pull him off of the fence or catch him in open space. And I, I said this on Submission Radio, which is, you know, if someone told you to defend a takedown, what posture are you going to assume? You would assume something either a, a, a exactly like or pretty close to a wrestling stance, right? All you have to do is defend the takedown. You have to worry about anything else, just the takedown. You're going to lower your level. You're going to bring your elbows in, right? You're going to put your hands first line of defense. You might lower your head a little bit as well, although you might have a head up depending on what you want to do, but it depends on what level you want to get. But you understand, crouching, elbows in, hands out, T-Rexing, that's what you would do. And for folks who don't know why you would keep your elbows in, if your elbows get away from your body, you're going to get hit with arm drags, duck unders, slide bys. It's bad. You want to keep your elbows in tight. Anyway, so that, imagine that position. Put that in your head, kind of hunched over, hands out, elbows in. Now look at some of the positions he got taken down in when he was keeping his feet planted with his waist sort of on top of his feet, so to speak. But then his trunk is doing that matrix thing. So what they would do is they would throw some kind of strikes to get him to plant and then alter his trunk movement. And then they would catch him a lot of times like this. Feet planted, waist here, but his back would be like, right? In other words, if you're hunched over except ready to get the takedown, and then in this case, you have your back, your, your shoulders way behind your waist, it's literally the opposite place you would want to be to defend a takedown. doesn't mean you can't defend the takedown in that particular space. It just means it's going to be very, very hard. And that's what they were catching him away from the cage and then in these in-between spaces when he was doing this. So the question you have to ask yourself is what adjustments did Adesanya and his camp make in terms of not just uh, how to defend takedowns when they come. I'm sure that's a big part. The Hickman brothers have those guys dialed in for the most part. It's a question of like what punches and what defenses are you going to employ to then deny those opportunities to begin with against a guy like um, uh, Vittori I think that's the question because the big lesson from the Jan fight is you get a big strong guy like that on top of you man um, it's trouble it's trouble and the way he was able to get him those are some he's tightened him up over time Adesanya has but they're kind of some lingering issues so we'll see what he did in this camp we'll see what kind of adjustments he makes because to me I don't think every fighter is capable of taking advantage in the way that Jan was. But in the way that Jan did, I think Vittori can somewhat, not entirely, but somewhat follow. And that might 
just might be enough to win. You're asking like what he has on his mind. I think that um, certainly the loss of a friend cannot help. Uh, I just wonder if a guy this experienced as a pro. Remember this guy came out with 70,000 people Marvel Stadium doing handstands and dancing with the Jabberwockies or whoever the fuck they were and then came out there and just iced Robert Whitaker. I mean, this dude is a pro. Like him, don't like him, up to you. He's a fucking pro. Uh, so I would think that tactically he's got a lot on his mind here. There's a lot that can't you... There are certain things that he likes to do that I wonder about whether or not he can do them in this fight and getting at putting yourself in uh, outside of your comfort zone or trying to expand your comfort zone, whatever the metaphor is, that's going to be a real big challenge for him. I'm very curious to see. I don't think Vittoria is as skilled as Adesanya, not by a mile, but to the extent that he can dial in on that particular Achilles heel um, makes it interesting. Main changes you've seen in MMA and the UFC in the last 10 years. Um, a couple things. I think that, um, Obviously, it's gotten significantly more globalized, which I think is all of us would agree is a fantastic thing. I think that audiences continue to get churned. They've come and gone. There are, I cannot tell you, there are so many people who were watching 10 years ago, right? 10 years ago, I don't know what the exact date was, but 2011, I mean, that's when Strikeforce got bought out by UFC. We're talking by a, or Zufa, we're talking about a completely different world even. There's a major turnover since that time. The professionalization has been big. Obviously, you know, the move to Fox Sports and then subsequently ESPN for the dominant brand in the space, I think, has been great. Um, the addition of weight classes. Inside of those weight classes, the fighters are getting better. Look at how much more wrestling versus those bullshit head tosses you see in women's MMA these days. I mean, it's just dramatic improvements. And, you know, broadcasts have gotten tighter. They've gotten... Um, I would say MMA has gotten somewhat more homogenous to a degree. Uh, because you had this big push from the from the decade, from about 2002 to 2011, since you're asking about 10 years, in, that's the bookend. You know, the effort that Zufa made to go state by state to get the sport regulated, they did a great job at, with it. But at the same time, they, um, they homogenized the sport by making sort of a consistent, well, relatively consistent rule set across you know you can't innovate too much as a promoter you cannot have tournaments you can do them but you can't do them in the way that you did them before perhaps for the better but um what that did was that locked out a lot of competitors because they couldn't say we offer a meaningful alternative from a rule standpoint to what the ufc does you cannot for example do what one does which is judge as a whole um the fight as a whole versus round by round so in general it's been really really good news many more fighters from many more places um, a lot of changes to the game. I would say the game became, the fighters became somewhat more homogenous for a time when everyone was like, okay, you really do need to be the best at everything and I'm going to abandon all my central gifts. And I think what you're seeing is people coming a little bit back around, which is getting a lot of your bases covered, but then having a really dominant ace in the hole. I think the ones who can do that, um, and that's going to be, you know, not so easy to do. But to the extent that someone can do that, like a Habib, it's going to set them apart. But that, the, 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 the desire to be a jack-of-all-trades and a master of none is going to allow someone who is not quite the jack-of-all-trades but the master of one to often, not always, but often have a fair amount of success. Okay. Jesus fucking Christ. This question is like a million fucking... I can't read all this. I don't know, it's too long. 
Do you have any... Uh, hold on. Uh, all right. Do you have any tricks or tips on dealing with a serious case of DOMS? Meaning like the soreness and shit and stiffness that comes after working out. Uh, the kind you get when you start lifting again after a long time off. Yeah, dude. Um, when I first, first started lifting in the middle of the pandemic, you know, I hadn't lifted in a while at that point, I didn't even have the capacity to do the normal amount of work I was doing before. I had to work up to, let's imagine, uh, six different exercises a day with four different sets. I'm going to, you know, the rep range would change, but let's say roughly just for the sake of argument, 12 reps. So you're doing four sets of 12 and you're doing six exercises, about an hour and some change to get that done. I had to work up just to get to that capacity, uh, was the first thing. So one is like, if you're, if you had a long time off and you're an old balls, dirt, dirt bag like me, just take your time. First of all, you really just do the, there's a concept, uh, Dr. Mike Israel is big on this maximum recoverable volume. How much can you do such that you can recover from it enough to get back out there the next day, or at least in this case, a regular training cycle, let's say four or five times a week and still produce, um, high quality work there's only going to be so much that's going to change per person it's going to change per person over time what your maximum recoverable volume is um you don't have to add more volume over time as a consequence of your body getting adjusted to it but that is a concept what is your maximum you got to really adhere to that idea what is the maximum amount i can do um and you your body will know that that's that's sort of the first part so one there's that second part is if you're sore a lot sort of look at the way in which you're lifting or what makes some adjustments about higher lifting most, if not nearly all, soreness comes from the eccentric part of the exercise, not the concentric, right? So if you're doing a curl, that doesn't, that's not the part that makes you sore. It's the descent back to, back to neutral. That's the part that does it. It's not the bench press that gets you sore. It's the bringing the bar back to the chest to get ready to press it again. It's the eccentric, not the concentric part. So pay attention to how you're doing the eccentric. Um, if it's really kind of inhibiting you, maybe limit some exercises where that's a, where that really you know blows you up when you're first getting back, um, and get a lot of rest, get, drink a lot of water, eat right, sleep right, dude. You gotta if if you're 35 or older, and maybe even before that, depending on your medical history and whoever you are, and you're not sleeping enough, and you're not hydrated enough, and you're not eating the right macro and micronutrients, and then you go in there and try to lift, you are gonna notice right away. Even if you can build up the work capacity. It's just not the same when you were, dude, when I was 21, I had the worst fucking warm-ups ever. My warm-up was walking from the car to the gym, chalking up, busting out a set of pull-ups and being like, okay, let's ready, let's go. And I would just fucking lift, you know, just terrible. And I got away with it because you're 21 and no one gives a shit and it's whatever. You can't do that anymore. A good warm-up, good hydration, good nutrition, good sleep. Pick your exercise selection at first so you don't have an overly encumbered eccentric involvement in your selection of exercises pay attention to maximum recoverable volume get a good program going and build up that work capacity is the best i can tell you um if they if you if espn offered me a contract would i take it i mean you mean if they offered me like a million dollars would i take it <laughs> i would certainly entertain it it would be, you know, a question of what they would offer. And I don't think that they would offer anything close to what, uh, you know, CBS and Showtime take care of me. So, it, you know, I'd be, I'd listen to any suitor if they 
had enough money or something or you know whatever but um it would t- it would take a lot to pull me off this perch it would take a lot so in theory i would listen but in reality would it happen it seems very unlikely how have you and bc celebrated your success we haven't not too much um we had a long heart to heart in miami about the future of the brand and where we th- think it's going and what we want to do and how far it's come and things like that. Um, because I think there's some big opportunities on the horizon for us. I mean, it was, that was a big for us in Miami. Again, dude, that fight was dumb. You all, you all know it was dumb. And it wasn't even very good, right? I mean, I'm not saying anything in any way controversial. And you guys know it. But putting us, Showtime giving us the opportunity to be... At the, at, you know, the, and the Versace thing was just for fun. It was silly, but to do that and then to do the weigh-ins and everything else, you know, um, we were told that people, I think I said this, if you guys didn't see Room Service Diaries, I said it there, dude, we were told that very high up people, in fact, the highest people in sports in Showtime were very happy with the work that we did. So like, you know, have we celebrated? I, I don't know if it's time to celebrate candidly. Um, I think it's time to think about where we're going to go. And what it's going to look like when we get there and what matters to us and what doesn't. So, like, have we, you know, have, have we popped the champagne bottle? Not really yet. Um, I think by the end of this weekend, we'll be at 90K subs on this channel. Uh, so, you know, 100's coming down the corner. 100 is, you know, it's somewhat arbitrary. It's a, it's a thing for YouTube. It's not really a, doesn't change your life overnight. But that's a nice little benchmark. Maybe we'll toast a glass next time I see him when that happens because that's coming. Um, but honestly, there's plenty of work to do. I think it'd be very much as happy as I am about where things have gone and how well they've gone. They're not, we, there's a lot of work to do. A lot of work to do. Luke, what if, uh, given that you have an Ember mug and asked for coffee shop recommendations, I take it you like coffee more than most. I love coffee. What is your preferred brew method if you have one? So, uh, if you've got the tools for it, and I no longer do, and you've got the patience for it, I think a pour over is the best way to get just really smooth, rich, delicious coffee. And obviously, it will depend on what kind of bean you pick and whatever, but um, and, and what region it's from. But I think a pour over. If you guys ever been to uh, God, what's it called? Um, It's like uh, La Cosecha. No, that's the that's La Cosecha is the uh, is the market here. Um, what is the what the fuck is the name of that coffee shop? It starts with a C. I forget it. It's a, it's a chain, but they make really good pour overs. If you're asking at home, what I do, you know, listen. Most of the time, I'm up at like seven with my kid. I'm usually tired as balls. I'll just make it the normal way with a normal coffee machine. If I'm if I have a little more time and I have a nicer bag of coffee, French press. I really like a good French press. I think French press because you don't really get in the in the essentially the brew process. There's no filter for uh, the water from the coffee grinds. Um, for you know as it's as it's steeping together until you finally press it down. And then once you once you do, obviously it's all kind of sat there together. I, it, that to me just makes absolutely phenomenal coffee. I really, 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 really like uh, French press.
always wanted to know, ideally, how would fighters unionize? In other words, in a perfect world, how would you envision a union for UFC fighters? This is pretty simple. There's a process by which um, they would have to vote. And it's a pretty small threshold. I forget if it's like one-third or something like that. Whatever the, the threshold is, they essentially would get put to a vote from an organizing effort. Do you want to join? If a sufficient amount of them join, whether it's half or um, a third, if enough of that happens, then at that point, the government would legally recognize it and you would have a union. It's not nearly as complicated as you thought. The issue is not about the mechanics of how, uh, although there is some question about like, would Zufa see my vote, and which they would not. Um, so there's some, there's some apprehension about the process. But in general, the hurdle you're trying to climb is a little bit less about can we get your vote on this process, although that, that is a real one. I don't want to minimize it. It's a bigger one about like, do you believe that unionization can really help? I think there's some fighters, which you get a lot of is you get a lot of guys who think a union would help in some things, but not enough to meaningfully change their their situation. Might help X, might help Y. It's not going to help this person, me or whoever. Not enough anyway. And then when you add in what they see as a potential risk by having a voter role somehow going public, which would it would not happen, but let's imagine, you know, that's what they're going through in their mind. You know, the question becomes, is the juice worth the squeeze here? Is this advocacy that I don't, you know, it seems like it would be beneficial, but perhaps marginally so. And plus, it, you know, I don't want to get in trouble or, you know, whatever. That That's 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 your issue. Whoever cracks that code, that organize, it's, 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 it's an organizing issue. You need people to do this, who not only understand labor organizing and the act of labor organizing, um, you need people um, who can make make the argument to fighters about the very specifics of their life and the very tangible benefit that would come. Like they, they're. It's hard to make those claims, right? Can if you were organizing a union, could you say, "Hey, if you sign, we're going to get you know two hundred million dollars each year just off of extra revenue from ESPN deal, from X, from Y"? You know, you can't really make those claims. You can make them uh, in an abstract way. Oh, if we do this, we'll get you know. There's a good chance that uh, it's possible that we could negotiate for. Uh, but you, it's hard to make a concrete set of terms. You know, you're not ordering off a menu in that way. And so between that abstraction and some of the other mechanical issues I've talked about and then the, you know, convincing the fighters, that's, that's the issue. The person who cracks the code does that uh, or the group or whoever. That, that's what they have to get over. But like the, the process by which to get it certified, it's pretty simple. It's just an ele- essentially an, a buy-in election, more or less. Um, Luke, you shared on a recent room service diaries that around 2005, yeah, or so, you were driving around your car and you had the realization you weren't good at anything in life. What steps did you take to improve your life at this point? Um, I think at that point, I was drinking. I mean, you understand, my mom had been dead not a short time, you know, so I was in a bad place. And uh, I had just gotten out of the Marine Corps, so I probably had a lot of stresses about potentially being mobilized to go and I, I, I was just not in a good a good place in my life in 2005 it just wasn't it wasn't awesome you know I had there was a lot of expectations I think um, from my you have to understand like 
I don't know how to say it other than just to say it. Like my best friend who married uh, me went to law school. My other best friend who was my, who spoke at my wedding, um, he went to Ivy League and then was making just a fuck ton of money on Wall Street by 2005. Another buddy of mine was working at Goldman Sachs making stupid money. Another buddy of mine was like, you know, was working for a major elected official as a, one of his staffers. And here I was, you know, just farting my way through life. So like I and I had another friend in New York who was an investment banker and he was super wealthy and like among my peers I was just a clear underperformer at least after college and it really began to weigh on me it really be, they, they always say like you want you want peers that can you know you want your peers to be rich and connected and motivated and happy people because if you're around those kinds of people you'll be like that too but the truth is if there's a big enough gap like you begin to feel bad about yourself and I did I felt terrible I felt terrible about myself so. Um, so what did I do? I began, I think, in a more concerted way. I think I, think I got therapy at this point too, by the way. Uh, so that's number one. And number two, honestly, if I could just sort of, re I haven't really thought about that in the way you asked it. I, I, if I could retrace my steps a little bit, this was when I began to just pour all of my energy, either through training or watching as a fan or whatever, into, uh, into MMA. And this is when I just said, you know what, I'm gonna pursue things that make me happy. I don't know that I had a grand vision that if I did that, it would fix my problems. I just wanted to do that because it was finally something that got me interested, that I wanted to learn, that I wanted to, if I could develop expertise, apply it, it just, it consumed me and it's, it saved me and perhaps in another way as well. So I don't know that I have a good answer for you other than to say, number one, always, always, don't just listen to some jamoke like me, but, if I am telling you, if you have problems, to go get um, either physical problems, go get a doctor, or if you got some mental problems or mental challenges, whatever they may be, go see somebody for them—a psychologist, a psychiatrist, whatever, what you know, a social worker, whoever. But in a professional setting, have someone help you with those issues. And once that, once, usually what I've found is when you do those things, they're kind of able to help sort what matters to you a little bit more and why you might be engaging in certain destructive behaviors and then how to perhaps retool some of that. But ultimately, it's up to you. Ultimately, they can give you a bit of a roadmap, but you gotta go take it. You're the one who has to put those things into action for your life. So one was that, and then second one was just, dude, I'm just, I was just gonna invest all my life in, or all my time into something that, like I said, made me happy, engaged my brain, was interesting to me, uh, uh, helped me to have like, you know, uh, physical exercise and like a social network and everything else. And then things began to just build. They just built from there. Um, yeah, that's the answer. Best buddy cop duo, Rampage and Rashad, Bisping and Rockhold, or DC and Habib? Ooh. Rampage and Rashad, reluctant friends who bust their balls. Bisping and Rockhold, similar, pretty similar. Well, you know, they Rampage and Rashad used to hate each other and then they became friends. I guess that's what you're getting with Bisping and Rockhold. DC and Habib were training partners. You know what? Maybe DC and Habib, because they're so different. Different parts of the country. Different country, excuse me. Um, you know, different religions, different races, different sizes. They just got this bond over wrestling. Maybe that, right? Maybe that's a little bit different. With Bisping and Rockhold being friendly recently after having bad blood for some time, what are some rivalries that turn to friendships 
have surprised you the most? Um, for a time, I guess it, that shit's over now. For a time, Connor and Dustin was, I thought, surprising. Um, Rampage and Rashad's another one. The Shamrock Brothers had ups and downs. There was times when they were on the outs and then they got back together as like, you know, we're okay with each other. And I don't know where things stand now, but, you know, they had their ups and their downs. Um, when Dana signed uh, Kimbo Slice, you know, Dana talked a ton of shit. A lot of us did. I did too at first about Kimbo Slice and then, you know, eventually doing business with him and saying nice things about him. That's less like... You know, they're not friends or whatever, but major, major turnarounds. There's another one. Um, there's been a few where, like, guys lost to people and they went and trained with them. Something like that. With the current champions at Bantamweight and Flyweight, how difficult do you think it would be for Henry Cejudo to reclaim those two belts? Hard. I think he could get one. I think you could get one. Two would be possible. Unlikely. Have you ever gone bungee jumping? No, bro. I mean, I don't know what the rules are in bungee jumping. But like, I don't know. I feel like if you're... I feel like if you're 275 and up, Maybe just let leave that shit be, <laughs> you know. I'm gonna end up on have you seen this shit? Just like hitting my head with a, on a rock from the thing stretching too far, you know. All right, you guys love these fucking stupid questions here. Uh, who would win an athletic competition between you and BC? Swimming a thousand meters, probably him. Ten k run, probably him. Hockey, me. I would board check the fuck out of BC. Capoeira match. You know my brother-in-law does capoeira? I call that one a draw and then gymnastics. Oh, Jesus. Both of us would have some catastrophic injury. Probably a wash. So I'll go BC would be the overall winner given these particular uh, setups. Okay, I'll answer this question. This is a little bit different. Um... Oh, no, this is not what I think. Um, I don't know what this means. Um, Luke, with Ariel stepping away from ESPN due to being offered a pay cut, allegedly, it was reported that, I guess. What do you think this means for major media outlets covering the sport? Do you think this was a result of a particular personality or an indication of how and to the extent to which ESPN would like the sport to be covered? Thanks for the show. I mean... You know, listen, they, uh, my understanding is, and this is all secondhand, no one, I don't really know, but that Kenny Maine, who was there for what, 27 years, they gave him a low ball too. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that you're not good at your job. It doesn't mean you can't thrive somewhere else. It doesn't mean that they maybe shouldn't offer you more jobs or, you know, better pay or you couldn't do like, It doesn't mean 
it may not mean really anything about your level of performance, rather what might be a fit based on their interests and needs internally and what those could be at ESPN. Your, your guess is truly as good as mine. Like, do I believe that he couldn't do the job that they had set out for him or that, you know, he didn't, um, you know, do it to the best of his ability? Like, you know, obviously Ariel and I have our differences, but like, I'm not going to say he's not a hard worker. He's an insanely hard worker. I don't really believe... I don't really believe that he couldn't do that job if he wanted to, uh, but maybe they weren't paying enough. Maybe, maybe they got he got so sideways with Dana that they were under pressure. Like, there's I I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what it could be. But like, I would be again. I you know whatever our differences, I would be very. I don't. That dude works hard and he's got a big audience. Like you could say whatever else you want about him, but that's a fact. Um, so there. I, my guess, my guess is that, you know, yes, ESPN's been cost cutting. Okay, that's part of it. Um, I don't know. I really, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'd be saying something out of turn if I was like to offer a guess, but I will defend, I will defend him here and say, I don't think it has fuck all to do with performance related to the tasks that he was given. I don't think it has anything to do with that. And that could be wrong too. I don't know, but I, I would, I, that's my feeling about it, such as I can say that, you know. Do you and BC plan on working the San Jose and Inglewood shows for Bellator when California dials back the restrictions? I don't know. I don't know what Showtime's going to have us do. Do they got us busy this summer? Like, we're supposed to go to the Tank Davis fight in Atlanta the week of the 25th. Then CBS wants to send us, so not Showtime, but CBS wants to send us to the McGregor fight. I don't know what the status is with that, but I'm assuming that's on play. Then they wanted to send us to Tyson Fury versus Wilder 3. I, I don't think we can go to that because we both have family issues. And then you've got Pitbull and uh, McKee. I, th I'm, I think that's going to be in August. I don't know that for a fact. And then you've also got um, the Jake Paul and Tyron Woodley thing happening that month. I mean, they're, they're, we're on the move. So, like, you know... I can't be gone every weekend, so I don't know exactly what the plan is with that. We'll have to see. Uh, what was your game in jiu-jitsu if you had one? Top pressure, passing. Pressure, passing is my game. Pressure, passing. What techniques were you best at? Um, I was best at various knee cuts. I was best at uh, having a mount that would... Uh, just drain people. Um, good, I'm a good gripper. I got a strong grip. Um, what else did I with that? Kimuras, arm bars, bow and arrows. Um, not so much guillotines, darces, um, loop chokes. What else? Not a big leg locker. Um, not a heavy, heavy back taker. Really liked it when I could get people flat, obviously, or even on their side. I didn't mind it if they were on their side. Um, yeah, that's it. Could we ever expect an expansion of MK? Absolutely not. With the UFC in studio, like you're getting from Bellator and boxing and more crossover podcasts, like a submission radio and believe you me and Robin Black, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I mean, those guys are all doing their own thing, but like... MK is me and Brian Campbell, and that's the end of it. As far as I'm concerned, if he goes or if I go, it ain't MK anymore. You can call it something else, but it ain't MK. I mean, it would someone would have to be very special uh, 
to sub in and BC could be himself or sub in and me, I could be me with that same dynamic. It would be, it would require, it would require something very, very special. Why does the UFC use USADA instead of VADA for their drug testing? Surely if they wanted the best drug testing, they would go for VADA considering they use the CIR test, carbon isotope ratio test for all urine samples alongside VADA being cheaper than USADA. Um, I don't know what their reasoning was, except that with USADA, it's a comprehensive plan that they can impose on the fighters without negotiation, whereas VADA is by definition voluntary. I believe that if you want to have anti-doping in the UFC and you still want to, like, I, I will maintain this until the end of time. Even if you believe in USADA and you don't have any good evidence for that, but let's say that you did. Let's actually say that you believed in what they brought to the sport. Um, there is still the argument that has to be reconciled that it, like anything else, Reebok deal, whatever, it was, it was forced on them and they had no say about the particular contours of it, which is why it took time for people like me making vociferous arguments over time to say this is bullshit and they need better treatment. And so you saw a series of adjustments that were made. Perhaps you say, you know, with uh, the release of news items, something like that, right? So that was just forced on them. And that is something that if you at all value the rights of athletes, you can say, sure, you might like USADA, but there should have been some kind of negotiated process that the fighters had. Now, again, whose fault is that? You know, the fighters going to bear, if not most, uh, all the responsibility for not getting their act together to have this kind of a thing. Still, it does exist as an imbalance there. VADA, to me, is the way to go. Because to your point, they might do it for less cost. I don't know how far and wide they could do it across the earth. There may have been some logistical reasons that USADA wanted that. By the way, USADA does not have a huge budget, so they like to get these private clients where, by the way, they're not, they're not um, you know, there's been discrepancies in treatments between Olympic clients and non-Olympic clients. I've gone over that in, uh, in detail. I did one on Rogan's show as well. But uh, so they get extra money, so they really like it. But I think that that comprehensiveness is what the UFC was trying to sell. One, it's unfair that they force it on the fighters, and two... The, uh, the depth to which they are held under these rules is pretty onerous, such that the UFC can say, hey, listen, look at this hard-nosed program we instituted. Part of the reason why the UFC went this way in their overreaction to the, the TRTs of the world is they wanted uh, some cover if something bad happened, which is fine. I think if you're a business and you're not thinking about those things, in this line of work, you're in trouble. So they're right to think about it. They're right to have taken an act. I don't, you know, nothing they did was certainly illegal or anything like that, but unfair, just the same. VADA changes that because now, to the extent that VADA is testing anyone is to the extent that they have of their own volition uh, agreed to it. Now, some of you might say, yes, but you'd get less comprehensiveness. Fine, you'd get less comprehensiveness, but one, USADA has, to my knowledge, never once, not once, been able to show definitive proof that what they do is effective, not once. You can assume that that's true. You might believe with all your heart and hearts that's true. Show me the evidence. That's a completely different scenario. And oh, his physique changed. Like, I mean, please take that shit to another sucker, not to me. Uh, so you, yes, you would have less comprehensiveness, but one, you wouldn't have this forced on the athletes. And two, while there'd be some disparities, um, one of the things that research shows is that peer pressure among the in-group of athletes, so among decathletes, among cyclists, or whoever, peer pressure to adopt anti-doping reforms or anti-doping policies actually works pretty well. So you'd see a lot of guys who main events 
who would be like, I'm on Vada. Why isn't this guy on Vada? Or you know, wanted me to take this fight, they have to get on Vada, right? And so it could be used as a negotiating tactic. So to me, that's a much, much, it's a less comprehensive way of perhaps doing anti-doping, which by the way, may or may not get you different outcomes. But here's one thing you know for sure that it changes. It is a much more ethical model for the rights and representations of athletes, period. No doubt about it. That's a weird question. If you were on death row, what would be your last meal? <laughs> uh, does the undergarments of a <laughs> a BBL count? Um, what would be my last meal? All right. Well, here's what you have to ask yourself. What is something you like to eat versus what is something you can reasonably rely upon the prison to deliver to you. Now, I don't know how that works. I don't know how, like, if you, let's say you were on death row and you wanted a lobster. Do they go to fucking bread lobster? Because if that was the case, I'd probably skip it, you know? Um, if I, if you're just asking me, like, what I would like to eat for my last meal. Fuck, man, I don't know, that's a good one. I'd probably go... Filet mignon, maybe. Um, you know what? I, I'd get a little. I'd get a little uh, pedestrian with it. Fries. Um, maybe some chimichurri in there. Yeah, something like that. I would keep it. You know, steak frites basically is how I would leave it. That's not the most elegant answer, but you're asking me what I want, but the question is like, could I rely on them to deliver that? I don't know. That's a bit different question. So if I'm having to order from like the cheesecake factory for my last meal and you can pick anything on the menu because that's what they'll deliver to you, I'd probably just go, well, the cheesecake, the cheesecake factory, I've been to a cheesecake factory one time in my life. It was like reading Lord of the Rings, that fucking menu. Ever seen that? You guys ever been to cheesecake factory? The menu is like, it's written in fucking whatever those languages are that J.R.L. Tolkien memorized, it's just fucking page after page. Hey, here's a page of linguine. There's a page of tacos. Want a pizza? Get a pizza. Like, you ever seen the fucking menu? The menu is absolutely insane. Cheesecake Factory menu. All right, so what's on the Cheesecake Factory menu? Let's see. What would I get if this was the way in which I had to go out? So let's do... So they've got desserts, small plates, snacks, appetizers, salads, flatbreads, lunch specials, glam burgers, pastas. What else we got here? Hold on. Pastas, steaks, chops, fish, seafood, specialties, skinny-licious, eggs and omelets on Saturday and Sunday brunch, kids, new items, and beverages. It's the biggest fucking menu on earth. So let's go. Let's just say it was lunch specials. Let's just say. Oh, those are shit. Never mind. Uh, well, what about glam burgers? Maybe I'd get uh, like a, a, an amazing glam burger there, pastas. Oh, you know what? Eggs, egg yolk dripping on. I guess I would just get like a glam burger. That's like the worst answer ever because that's not what I would want to eat for my last like go round. But if that's the shit they toss you, I, I guess that's the way you got to go. 
If you had to cover another sport, which one would you feel the most confident non-combat? Um, I could probably, if I had a few years, I could train up to be not the worst, maybe, at soccer. Um, but I would take some time. That would take some time. That would take serious amount of work. And that would only be to be like not terrible. All right. Uh, what do we got here? All right. I'll give you a good one. What are three new sources you would recommend to a person trying to become more informed and well-rounded member of society? So before, when you guys had asked me that, and you know, a lot of you guys criticized it, I had told you like I like to start with my news, typically centered around mainstream outlets. Like I'll open up the Washington Post every morning to read it, to sort of see the lay of the land. And then what you begin to see is um, I'll I'll go to uh, other outlets to see if they've confirmed it, and then I'll go to individual skeptics that I tend to follow that can sometimes blow that up, so I can get a much more nuanced view of that news, or to see if they actually agree. So I'll give you three that are not traditional news sources as such but have been very helpful to me in correcting wrongs that I've gotten from mainstream media. Because in general, I've made this point before, like you can hate or love the you know the Washington Post, and certainly there are issues with uh, Jeff Bezos owning it. But you always gotta remember, you have to think about it like this as an operation. Think about it as like a factory that makes shoes. Who is operationally uh, enriched enough with the kind of infrastructure they need to produce not only a huge amount of shoes, but different kinds of shoes. Who's got enough conveyor belts, who's got enough employees, who's got enough delivery trucks, who's got all the different pieces to do that. A major news organization, Reuters, AP, New York Times, Washington Post, whatever, they may have all the liberal slants that you hate, but as a news gathering organization, they have a shit ton of resources relative to a lot of their uh, uh, critics. That doesn't make their critics wrong, it just means I, I personally, for me, I like to start there. Start being the operative word. You're asking for three that are a little bit different to be more informed. Here's what I'll say to you. He is very controversial, and a lot of people who think like me hate him, But, and I've certainly taken some issues with his views, but I have found him very, very, very helpful in pinpointing the errors of mainstream media in ways that not only says they got this story wrong, but in trying to describe why corporate media fails so often uh, and why it, and why there is consistent failure over time when they have him, Glenn Greenwald's Substack. I know a lot of people don't like him. I know there's going to be some people on the left when I, when they hear me say this, rolling their eyes. That's fine. You can roll your eyes all you want, but you know there's this new story about um, the I think it was the Inspector General's report that came out about Lafayette Park. That's the park just behind the White House. I've been through it a million times. And how they had to clear the protesters. Now, the way in which they cleared those protesters with flashbangs and nightsticks, including with they got foreign press, they were clubbing them. That's a separate issue that has to deal with the police methods that were used to remove them. But it was believed, and certainly I bought into it at the time because it was so widely reported, including by conservative media, by the way, at the time, which they don't say. But in any case, although Molly Hemingway um, uh, from Federalist was a little bit different in that way, but neither here nor there. That that removal it may have been done, um, you know, with excessive police use or a force, but that it wasn't tied specifically to Trump wanting a photo op with the upside down Bible at the nearby church. That that actually is an un, it's unrelated in that way, and he has been big about that. He's been big about pointing out media errors, and I've been clear. Like also, he was a really instrumental. Him and Aaron Mate, instrumental in getting me to realize how much of this Russia 
provocation is just utter nonsense. Um, and how much people on the left who complain about disinformation and conspiracy theories running amok and who want online platforms to censor them are also instrumental in producing their own kind of disinformation, perhaps a different way, related to partisan political causes. Glenn Greenwald has been very, very helpful for me in that regard. And again, some people can't stand him and they can't stand some of his views, but he's been very good about that. That's one. Two, ProPublica. Uh, they will do some partisan uh, reporting. That is true. However, they do enough stuff that holds power, whatever its manifestation, to account to make them, I think, much more credible than a typical news organization. Their model is not the same as corporate model, first of all. And second of all, did you see the giant expose they did in how the rich get taxed? It is so fucking bad. And their reporting is so thorough and so overwhelming. Dude, you've even got Republicans in Congress being like, what in the fuck is happening here? Now, there also is a bigger debate about can you trust the IRS to properly audit and implement some kind of constraints around um, essentially unfair taxation practices. Uh, fine, that's a debate that can be had. But ProPublica in general, they will blow up the powerful in ways that I think is critically important. And the last I would say, you're going to laugh at this maybe, um, this isn't maybe one for you if you don't want it, but I have found that the Texas Tribune, I don't even live in Texas, I don't even care about Texas that much, but the Texas Tribune and their kind of coverage, which is, um, again, not corporate modeled, it is, uh, it thinks first about the average Texan's needs, it holds power to account, um, it is educational reporting, it is thorough reporting, it is smart reporting, it is accessible reporting. When that freeze happened and it knocked out the power grid, their reporting on why it happened and what would be next and what some solutions were, were it was the best I'd read anywhere. And I, you know, it didn't matter where you got it from. Texas Tribune is just the way, I'm not gonna say the way the news should be, but as a model is so much better than major corporate media in an almost every way. Um, so those are three. I pay. I, I don't pay for Texas Tribune, but I pay for. Um, I donate on occasion to ProPublica, and I pay for Glenn Greenwald Substack. You could maybe throw in Matt Taibbi in there again. I know people on the left can't stand those two guys right now, but I feel like you, you, dude, like you cannot read or consume news all the time that you just like. That's a very bad idea. You should have people in your follows or in your diet or whoever that annoy you that piss you off, that, that challenge you, that make things uncomfortable for you. you. You need it. You need someone in there who will do that for you. Uh, that's the whole point, really, uh, uh, frankly, of, of championing, championing uh, independent media um, and watchdogs and critics and whatnot. Because dude, the way things are going, you're getting, it's already quite partisan, but the trajectory is clear. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. You need powerful, smart voices and entities out there who can A, hold power to account properly, and then two, um, are outside of the corporate media mechanisms that uh, I think in general can produce decent news day to day in general, but are going to make serious fucking errors. And when they do, they need to be held to account. And people like Glenn Greenwald in that particular case, in that particular case, um, he is essential for someone like me super essential so i go to him a lot
Let's see. Let me do one more good one. <laughs> oh, here's one. It's got 22 upvotes. Okay. Luke, how does Showtime feel about BC constantly being sent to hell by fighters? I think they love it. Someone says, should he change his approach slightly? N no. Uh, dark horse for the Euros. I guess I have uh, deeply underestimated the Portuguese. Um, I saw that, like, who was it, Grant Wall, who was saying that, like, this Portuguese team is better than the one that won the Euros last time, which is probably true. So I've, I, maybe they should not be the dark horse. You know, Belgium is always kind of out there as, like, a you know, surprisingly good team, although they don't have quite the depth of, you know, like, dude, the depth on France. Like, as an American, you got to understand, man, as an American – and you look up the fucking, <laughs> the French, you know, starters, you're just like, dude, yeah, how could the U.S. ever compete against a team like that? I don't know the, I don't think you can, like, is the answer, like, you just can't, they're just, they're just way better, um, but no, dude, B, dude, BC is BC, man, you gotta just let him be, you know, sometimes he takes the trolling a little bit far, and we've had conversations about that, all right, you had your fun, that's fine, let it be. Uh, you know, and maybe sometimes these are situations that could be avoided, but it's like, dude, I don't get, like, I didn't defend him on the Mayweather thing because he's a big boy and he brought it on himself and that's fine. And, and, and then the other part was like, it's, you know, Mayweather didn't like it, but it's mostly an all good fun. So like when he gets sent to hell by some of these people, you know, a lot of times, dude, pissing off fighters is not bad by definition. It's not bad. Now, obviously if you're being a prick, that's bad. If you're intentionally just trying to get a rise out of them. That's bad. If you're, um, you know, if you're being inane and wasting their time, that's bad. But if they get mad at you because you challenge them, that's not bad. Their answers and their view is not the default view of the world. They don't get to have that. But in fairness, neither do we. Our view does not get to be the default view. But someone has to challenge the other one. It's okay when fighters challenge media. It's fine. A lot of times you see fighters get bitter at the things I say. Dude, let them have their say. It's okay to get bitter. Uh, but it doesn't mean you have to bend and vice versa. But like the uh, the powers in play need to check each other a little bit. That's why I went back to that Naomi Osaka thing um, when everyone was like, you know, uh, oh, she's acting like a diva. Well, I don't think that was the, the case at all. I think, listen, man, if you would rather not compete than talk to the media, you probably shouldn't compete. Um I take that, I, and I don't mean that to be like, oh, you're weak. No, 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 far from it. Like, your mental health is number one, period. And everyone's interests after that, they can take a hike. But we should talk about something for just a second. I saw a lot of defenses of Osaka, and I'm okay with that. Again, to me, I don't really have an issue if you don't want to compete, talk to the media. And I don't have an issue with saying that some of that media, those practices can go away. I'll come back to that in a second. But here's what you got to realize. These powerful fighters like Mayweather, you know, or, or you know, even smaller ones like Gervonta Davis, dude, they've got an army of motherfuckers around them. People who are, uh, help them out, PR people, advisors, financial managers, all this stuff. These are, these are, you know, I'm not a businessman. I'm a business man. It's really what they are. Like they, they're these giant entities and there's all these forces orbiting them. Dude, the idea that, forget Osaka for just a second, but the idea that powerful athletes, Tom Brady, whoever, that their version of things 
should be the one that gets reported to the public explicitly and only without any kind of pushback or challenge or criticism or even just, you know, good faith questioning. That to me is insane because I think it's a good thing that athletes have social media. I think it's a good thing that athletes have something like the Players' Tribune where they can share their views with the world, right? That is a check on shitheads in the media. It's a check on poorly reported pieces. It's a direct pipeline to the fans. Dude, that's long overdue. Let all the athletes have their say in every way in which they want to have it. They're, and you see in MMA, YouTube channels, and they're, and they're putting out their own version of things. Dude, no problem. But let me tell you something. I have seen behind the curtain with athletes who say one thing to the public and everything they're doing behind it is the opposite. I'm not even talking about like infidelity, which is not any of our business anyway. I'm talking about bad actors doing fucked up things. So the idea is Osaka seems like a good faith uh, uh, competitor who has a real issue that she needed to take care of. You would have to be a real prick to be against that. But the argument to defend her that, oh, well, the press conference has no more value. Dude, most of the people saying that have never attended a press conference and don't understand the value of them at all. It is true that the press conference, as we understand it today's value is very much overrated. The idea that it has no value or that it can't be uniquely beneficial is quite obviously idiotic to anybody who knows what they're talking about. Dude, the very fucking next day, they had Serena Williams do a press conference and they used the clip of her talking about that, of Osaka, to the wider public. Automatically, it's a refuting argument of the idea that press conferences don't hold any value. The very next day, the very next day, oh, press conferences don't hold value. Wait 24 hours, boom. And it got circulated uh, through all of the television stations. It got circulated online. It got circulated in the clips on radio. You know, this idea that like you, the athlete is, has, you know, uh, uh, should have unconstrained, unfettered access to the audience without any third party checking up on that and that the mechanisms by which they interact with the, the, the athlete um, are outdated and should be abolished. It's just fucking moronic. Could you have smaller press conferences? Yes. Should you have fewer of them? Yes. Um, I, I've said it before. If the UFC wants to have them, don't invite the fans. Or, in my view, invite the fans and don't invite the media. You can't have both. right? If it's a press conference, it's for the press. If you want to invite the fans, then to me, the fans should be the ones asking the questions. But in either case, you can do probably less of that. You can have less of these things, and you can have a smaller group of media. Like the amount of media these people have to do in tennis and even in combat sports, it's probably way too much. That's why I don't like doing a lot of interviews for a lot of reasons. One, I don't think I get an honest reaction, but more than that, it's like, dude, this guy's done 15 interviews today. Do I want to call him up and be number 16? Like, <coughs> I'd rather talk to you when you want to talk to me. I'd rather talk to you when you have something to say. You know, versus I, you, the mandated mic in your face. So I, I'm with the idea completely that media practices and media uh, uh, expectations for athletes is in desperate need of reinvention. I am absolutely with it 100%. The press conference can be majorly pulled back, no doubt about it. But, but Naomi Osaka seems like a very, very, very nice person. Fine. Maybe what she says is 100% the truth. I'm not in a position to say otherwise. I don't know. 
But I know that I don't want a rich, powerful athlete with a major PR team and lawyers and everyone else sending cease and desists and threatening people from real stories about real people who are doing real bad things, or at least things the public should know. Uh, I, I, I'm opposed to the idea that that's not a good idea because you know our current practices are somewhat onerous um, to certain members of the press. You know, and, 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 and I get it. I'm not saying that that burden is not real. It's real, but. That boy, that is they 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 got that one totally wrong. And, and dude, every time you see something like the press conference doesn't have any value, dude, those are motherfuckers raising their hand, being like, "I have no idea what I'm talking about." <laughs> that's what they're gonna do. That's that's what they're saying. If you've ever been to one, a real one, you will see that the value to media and frankly to the athlete alike, although a little bit less so to the athlete, obviously, there is some imbalance there. It is extraordinary in the right circumstance. Pared down, measured, yes, hundred percent real. Don't believe any of that bullshit. Don't. <laughs> so it was like, can you do a resume review on Dustin? We might. All right, is there any other one that's got a bunch of upvotes that I am skipping? How long till Triller goes under the app? I don't know. The boxing experience, not that much longer. Let's see. Oh, last one I'll answer. I saw this one I wanted to answer. With the rise of big personality shows, meaning analysis, opinion shows, podcasts with fighters, so Chael and Bisping and prominent media personalities, they write you, Ariel Rogan, uh, CME, Anik. Are MMA news sites, Junkie Fighting, BE, in danger of disappearing? They are the backbone of the media and their numbers don't look good. I've not seen their numbers recently to know whether or not they do or don't look good. Um, but I will say that the MMA site, you know, has declined in general. What do I mean by that? 15 years ago, the apex place you could have worked would be SureDog.com. That would have been far and away your number one site. And in fact, the only places you could have gone maybe to MMA.TV, which was the precursor to MixedMartialArts.com. MMA Weekly was big. But the idea was you had these website platforms that were the biggest. And then there was this sort of growth alongside of them. Them came. Uh, initially, MMA Junkie was UFC Junkie that got switched because they had to switch it around. MMA Mania was originally UFC Mania, Bloody Elbow, blah, blah, blah. Then these sites began to really emerge in the aughts. So MMA fighting was purchased from AOL, right? You had Bloody Elbow, you had MMA Mania, Weekly Sherdog. I'm sure there's some other ones uh, I'm missing, but those are some of your more prominent ones. Th that was the highest level that you could essentially get um, to do coverage. And the growth of these social platforms, there was like MySpace at the time, but there was no Instagram. Twitter didn't come along as a kind of a force until much, much later. In other words, if you wanted to work in the industry and you want to work in the preeminent place, the platform of choice back then was an MMA website. But that was also the, the era of the internet where people had blogs and they could kind of connect to each other. You have seen the internet kind of get flattened and shrink a little bit. Certainly it's more expansive than ever, but you win by being on platforms. You win by having a large following on Instagram, on Twitter, on YouTube, on you know pick your platform at this point and which has made the site you know uh like if you look at my new my 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 instagram name and even my twitter name it's luke thomas news right 
BC has made fun of me for it, rightly so. But there was a time when I wanted to have a, a site called LukeThomasNews.com, and I was going to be like a repository for all my things. But then after a time when I was beginning to build it, I was like, this is senseless. Like, no one's going to come to this, and I'd have to, like, do a bunch of things to make it show up high in search. I don't need that. I just need to dominate on whatever platform I'm on. So that's when I invested all my energy into my personal YouTube channel. Um, so, uh, so what I'm so what I'm trying to point out here is, you know, I think Junkie is still a preeminent site. Uh, Fighting just hired Sean O'Shaughty, which is good for them. And you know, a site like BE, like a site that I talk about again. People in MMA want to read nothing but relentless praise of MMA. You you gotta love Bloody Elbow. Because they're the only ones who will give a middle finger to the industry itself. And you need entities or people like that to keep things in perspective, number one. Um, but the value of those platforms on the internet generally have declined. Like back in the day, the big lead was a big one. Sports by Brooks was a big one. Those are not platforms you go to anymore. You go to giant ones like your social media platforms or your ESPNs, perhaps CBS Sports, depending on what you're looking there for, right? These big, big entities. Those are really the only way to compete. There are some exceptions. You can do well on Patreon. Um, there is um, there's a basketball site that has a pay model. I think it's called like like Behind the Glass or something like that, like Beyond the Glass, something. And then um, Ben Thompson has a tech and sort of like a how would you say it? Business tech kind of uh, analytical website called Stratechery. Um, he's always had a pay model. He can thrive, you know, got sort of like a Substack e kind of model. Um, but these are the new platforms. These are the new ways that people make money and get attention because the internet won't allow. Like if you tried to like compete, if I wanted to start up LukeThomasNews.com today, you know, hard it would be to compete for traffic on search it would be virtually impossible and then to grow some kind of social platform you could do that but then you're really growing the social platform kind of independent a little bit of the uh site itself like so that that the internet has made that kind of um site less valuable and then more to the point last thing i'd say on this is now what's the highest level of mma media like you can have your own potentially television show you can work on espn you can work at showtime you can be on tv like you can have your own podcast, your own YouTube channel. You just don't need the site the way that you had to go through them before. That was the way you did it. There was really no other way. And now there's tons of ways around it. And you don't ever, like, I can curate my Instagram feed to just get all my news from there. You don't actually have to go to blah, 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 blah. So, um, you know, they, they have other values. There's still some of them are quite big. But the MMA site and its value to MMA relative to how it used to be is majorly declined. All right, that's it for me today. I appreciate you guys watching. Uh, let's see, let's do this. Boom. Thumbs up on the video. Uh, hit subscribe. We are very close to hitting 90K. There will be a MK tomorrow and a post-fight show on Saturday right here. So don't go anywhere for that, okay? Thank you guys so much for watching. I really appreciate it. And until next time, stay frosty.